Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. I'm Scott Lipkowitz, and you're listening to New Books in Military History on the New Books Network. Obedience is integral to the military, to society, and to communities. To bring individuals together to work cohesively and successfully towards a common goal, be it seizing an objective on the battlefield, creating an enduring political or social project, or simply running a local soup kitchen, obedience must be present. But how many of us, whether soldiers or civilians, ever stop to consider just what obedience is? Is obedience a core military virtue? Is it a core civilian virtue? And if so, why? Why should soldiers or citizens be obedient? When should they be disobedient? And how might or should conflicting or overlapping obediences influence the conduct of modern American citizen soldiers? These questions are the driving force behind Pauline Shanks Corinne's nuanced, insightful meditation on the nature of obedience, on obedience, Contrasting Philosophies for the Military, Citizenry, and Community, published by Naval Institute Press. Pauline shanks Corinne holds a PhD in philosophy from Temple University with a specialization in military ethics, just war theory, and applied ethics. Currently, she's a professor of professional military ethics at the U.S. Naval War College. The views expressed in this podcast are entirely her own and do not represent the views or policies of the U.S. Naval War College or the Department of the Navy. And now, it is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Corinne to the show. Pauline, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. We're currently living in a giant natural experiment around obedience, given the current COVID-19 outbreak. Um, But obviously, global pandemics and shelter-in-place orders were not probably what motivated you to write on obedience. So what first caused you to start thinking about this topic? Um, yeah, this this was not, it's it's perhaps timely, but I, I didn't plan all of this. Um, I think uh, it's a topic that I teach a lot on. Both, I, I taught undergraduate for 25 years of uh, philosophy, and now I, I teach at the U.S. Naval War College. So it's a topic that comes up a lot in my teaching and then also in my writing. I'm a mother of two teenagers, so it also sort of comes up there. But I had been I had been thinking about obedience and uh, thinking about the fact that there aren't really very many good treatments, philosophical treatments of obedience outside of philosophy of religion or outside of uh, discussions of civil disobedience. And so I really started to think about, well, what is this thing? Uh, called obedience. And I think as a parent, you think about it a lot. And you think about where your boundaries are. But my dissertation was on the My Lai Massacre. And so, you know, when we think about war crimes and, and orders given in combat, it is it is something that, that comes up in this question of, you know, is, is obedience always uh, a thing that you have to do? Are, are there exceptions to, to being obedient? And, and there is quite a a disagreement uh, about those uh, about those things, and I think we see that disagreement in our perhaps more in our current context. But then, as I was thinking about these things, I um, 
in the run-up to the uh, 2016 presidential election, there were there were questions raised about if then to be President Trump would to, were to order people to commit war crimes, would they do it or not? And so it became a part of that election cycle and those discussions. And I had a lot of military friends and colleagues who who were emailing me and, and asking me questions and really wrestling with these issues. And so um, I think I sped the book up uh, after after those conversations, hoping to start a conversation about obedience, hoping to get people to think about obedience and 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 people, not just philosophers, but also people who are practitioners, people who are citizens. So I think it's a really important topic for us to think about. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you've definitely started a conversation, at least, you know, my, my wife and I have been talking about it actually since I finished reading the book and, uh, you know, especially given our current situation. And as I was reading it and against the backdrop of being confined to my New York City apartment, uh, <laughs> you know, I realized just how forcefully the book was actually confronting, you know, my own intuitions around obedience. Uh, you know, even I had this kind of rather cut and dry understanding uh, you know, a commander had given an order that commanded me, you know, complied with the order. End of story. You know, I reflexively obeyed because the governor of New York said, stay at home. And, you know, whether, you know, whether or not for the common good and, and you know, public health questions aside, you know, upon reflection, I realized that to an outside observer, it would seem as though, you know, I didn't exercise any agency in that transaction. I just did what I was told. And, you know, you note that this is kind of the the view that's promoted, you know, by you know, classically in by many military theorists, you know, from Clausewitz to Samuel Huntington. Um, but your argument is much more nuanced than this approach. Um, so how how then, I guess, this is the basic question, which is how then do you define obedience? And, you know, why in your view are the common approaches uh, flawed? Um, yeah, I think the common approach, at least in military ethics, is that obedience is viewed as a virtue. Sam, um, you know, Samuel Huntington says that it's a virtue alongside of loyalty and military virtue. And I think there's also just a presumption of obedience, probably for good reasons, because you need that presumption in order for the military to function effectively, especially under fire. Um, my definition of obedience is that it has to be voluntary and intentional, and those are slightly uh, different things. And it has to be a response uh, to someone who's given a command, but that person who's given a command has to be in a position of legitimate authority. That's that's a short definition. Later in the book, I expand the definition to argue that um but there are considerations like from just war thinking, like just cause and reasonable proportionality or reasonable chance of success and proportionality that bear on whether or not uh, one thinks it actually is a good idea to obey in any given situation. And there's lots of the book has lots of sort of case studies or some hypothetical situations with my kids. There's uh, we talk about literature quite a bit, but there's also some historical case studies where, in fact, people have been arguably disobedient, but it turned out to be the right thing to do because of these other kinds of considerations like legitimate authority or proportionality. 
And ultimately, I argue that actually obedience turns out to be a kind of negotiation between the two parties. It's not as simple as I give a command and my children obey. And anyone who has children knows this, right? There is a, it, it becomes more complicated than that. Um, and so the book is really trying to take a, a view of, well, when is obedience a good thing? When is it a virtue? And then Maybe there are some times when one ought not to uh, obey or one ought to at least ask some hard questions about whether one should obey or not. Yeah, so you, uh, you the thing that really struck me that really picked me back was, you know, what you just uh, brought up, you know, is, you know, when should you obey? When ought you not obey? And how does that shade into, you know, diso- different uh, species of disobedience, I guess. And I, you know, I started thinking about it, like, this is interesting because, you know, as I said, you know, we don't usually think of obedience as something that's full of agency. Think of it as something where you're, you're giving up your agency. That kind of brings the, up the idea that, uh, or the question that, uh, the consideration, I guess, that obedience is conditional and contingent. And you bring up this very interesting distinction in the book about uh, two military contexts that might favor or force the expression of obedience in different ways. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, I think in order for obedience to be a virtue, it has to be critical obedience, meaning you have to have deliberated about about the thing you're asked to do and, and that you have to think about, is it in fact a good thing for you as a moral agent to do? Um, because I think if you If we have obedience where there is no moral agency, that can't be a virtue. Blind or passive obedience is not, in fact, a virtue. And we see lots of precedent for this in international law where people have made the case since Nuremberg and after Milai, the the defense of, well, I was just following orders uh, is, is not recognized as a legitimate defense, um, in particular because of this moral agency issue. So in the military, I think what we want to think about, and there's two different, I talk about sort of combat context and garrison context. So there's there's slightly different considerations in, in each context, but I also want to think about what's the purpose of obedience in each of those contexts. In a garrison context, where you are not perhaps on the front lines, so you're at a base, you're, you're training, you're um, participating in other activities. The aim of obedience is to habituate uh, certain things, is to practice certain things, to be able to work together as a team. And so obedience takes on a particular flavor there, much like it does with our parenting. Once we get into combat, uh, what we find is that the important consideration is what are the results of the obedience? So if it turns out you're disobedient, but it actually fosters mission accomplishment or combat effectiveness, I think in the military, we're much more likely to say, okay, we don't want to make a habit of that, but that was good that you did that. Um, And and so I think that's something that's important to think about, that we may have to think about obedience in different contexts and and what it's supposed to do. And the same in the civilian uh, context as well, when we think about civil disobedience. So it turns out that obedience is much more complicated than somebody tells you what to do and you do it. We have to think about, well, why are you doing it? What's the assessment, the moral assessment about the thing you are being asked to do that, that you as a moral agent make? So I'm asking people 
both in the military context and the civilian context, to be much more intentional and much more reflective about thinking about why they're doing what they're doing. So you mentioned the, this, you know, the governor issuing this stay-at-home order. We have the same thing in Rhode Island. And I, I had to really think about, well, what are the circumstances under which I would be willing to break that order? Or why is it a good idea that I follow that order, mainly because I have to explain it to my 12-year-old who wants to go hang out with his friends. Um, so I'm asking us to take a, a bit more of an intentional critical look at obedience and and when we should obey and, and when perhaps we ought not to obey or engage in activities maybe that are not quite obedience but not quite full disobedience either so beyond the garrison and combat context what else limits or influences our expectations of how critical obedience ought to be exercised uh, you know, again, individual agency seems to be vital to your understanding of obedience. Yet at the same time, as you've said, agency is not synonymous with unfettered individualism. And you observe that individual agency occurs within the confines of a specific community. Is community then what provides the moral grounding for obedience? Um, yeah. So I talk about Alistair McIntyre, who's a philosopher, wrote a book called After Virtue. I talk about his ideas of communities of practice. And the military profession is a particular kind of community of practice that brings with it certain practices, but also certain identities, traditions, and uh, moral norms. In the case of the military profession, people take an oath uh, to uphold and uh, certain kinds of, of norms. And so obedience is not just an individual virtue, it's a social virtue. And so when you are obeying, there's a it's not just you and the commander, there's a whole framework of other people who can be impacted by your obedience or disobedience. And that may give some reason why you ought to obey. In the case of the stay-at-home order, I ought to obey perhaps to protect not just myself, but other members of the community that I have an obligation to. Um, so, so now we have to think about obedience in terms of a community of practice, but it's also that community of practice that, that bounds the discussion uh, about what you can appeal to if you are going to be disobedient or you're going to engage in activities other than obedience. It's not just, I decided I don't feel like obeying today. If I'm going to make the case that that I'm not going to obey an order, I have to be able to make that case to the other members of the community of practice to which I belong. And I have to be able to make that argument in terms of the shared identity, tradition, values, and moral norms of that community. So in the military, if you are going to disobey an order, it can't just be, well, I don't really feel like cutting my hair today or whatever the order uh, involves. I have to be able to make some kind of appeal to some kind of shared values or norms to make my argument to a more collective audience. And I think you see this uh, I think with the the Crozier and the Modley uh, case, right, is that there was a disagreement about how to weight different aspects or different norms and values within the community of practice. Crozier was appealing to this idea of taking care of the ship and and his sailors. Modley was appealing to this idea of there are certain 
bureaucratic conventions, there's a chain of command, there are other practices that define the military community. So that's actually a really good example because it shows that they each had different judgments and 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 perhaps a disagreement about um, about some of the norms and values of, of the community, even though the Crozier case isn't a strict case of, of perhaps obedience or disobedience, but you can still see how the community of practice functions there. So it's not as simple as it's myself and, and, and the commander. There's an, it's that relationship is embedded in a much larger relationship. Yeah, I think in the uh, in the Crozier example too, you you see that spilling out. You can see that effect uh, that it's beyond just the former Secretary of the Navy and uh, and Captain Crozier in the reaction that the sailors gave and how they responded and how they interpreted what had happened in the actions. And there's also a larger there's a larger debate about the relationship between the military and civilian authorities. That also is part of this community of practice. There's a way in which the military and civilian hierarchies interact, and there were questions raised about had those norms been violated, right? So there's lots of layers here that you could look at. So speaking of the the civil military. Um, relationship that we have and the the fact that we have, you know, c- civilian control over the historically civilian control over the military um, and tying in that what you mentioned about oaths, about how soldiers and sailors and airmen uh, take an oath when they join uh, the you know profession of arms, uh, the community of, of practice that is military professionalism. Um, do you think that these oaths alter the moral landscape for soldiers in a way that maybe civilians uh, you know, who generally are not consciously entering into a political or civil community of practice, uh, you know, might be unfamiliar with or or uh, in a way that's that that puts different obligations on the soldiers and sailors than it does for the average citizen? I think it does. And I've argued that it does. I argue when you take an oath that it changes the moral landscape. And normally for those of us who are civilians, we don't take an oath when we take on a new job. Um but we do take oaths when we get married, perhaps, or if we're sworn into a jury, or um, you know, when I adopted my children, I, I took an oath in, in front of a judge. Um, and anytime we take an oath, first of all, the the oath is not just between the 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 people involved. The oath is typically a public activity. There are typically witnesses to this to this oath, right? So it's not just that you're agreeing to do something, you're agreeing to take on certain moral obligations, but you're agreeing in front of other people to, to do this thing, whether it's when you take your marriage vows or when I adopted my children, I had to agree in front of a judge that, that uh, my husband and I would would take care of these children and take up certain obligations. So that changes the moral landscape. You have different moral obligations after you've gotten married or after you've taken the oath of office. Same thing when we swear in a president or vice president or we swear in judges. We understand that they've now not just taken additional legal obligations, but they've also taken uh, additional moral obligations that may be quite different uh, than most people who just show up on the first day and, and, and start a job. Now, we could also ask the question about, is it that way for that person? And I have uh, a, lots of students at the War College who said the first time they took the oath, they didn't really understand 
what that meant. And, and then each time they take it, when they're, when they're promoted, they retake some people retake the oath. It has more meaning to them. So there may be a question about to what degree people feel like this is the case when they're taking the oath. But my argument is it's not about what people feel. It's about looking at it as a philosopher. Uh, morally, you have agreed to take up certain moral obligations that were not there before you said those words. And so it's a different moral situation after you take the oath than it was before. And that's part of what explains this idea of community of practice. When you take your oath to enter the profession of arms, you're entering a community of practice with history, traditions, identities, values and and moral norms, ways of doing things that you now are bound to in a way that you were not bound to before you took that oath. It's it's interesting that uh that uh you know individuals would would uh upon more ref- upon reflection or taking the oath a second time it would it would reinforce it for them and, and give deeper layers of meaning. Um I was wonder, I wonder if one of those layers is that they start to think about how limited the obligation to obey is. Um, does it, does the oath, I guess my question, the question is, does the oath make it, uh, now you have unlimited liability, uh, you know, it's, we'll talk about, about in the military, the signing the unlimited liability contract, but is the, is the moral obligation to obey in the military context actually unlimited and, you know, or is it, or is it constrained by other things just beyond, uh, the norms of the community of practice? My argument is that it's not an unlimited obligation, uh, because, uh, in order to take an oath, you still have to retain some moral agency. And after you've taken that oath, part of what a profession does is a profession regulates its own behavior, right? This was part of the issue with the Gallagher case was the, this question of who could decide whether Gallagher would remain a member of the sort of the you know trident community, whether he would keep his trident or not, which is the symbol of the of the community. So in order to be morally responsible for your actions to the community, that means that you have to have retained some moral agency. If you signed it all over to the state or some other community of practice, it wouldn't make any sense for us to hold you morally responsible because you don't have any moral agency. So you have to retain some moral agency. And the question for the profession is what kind of moral agency do you retain? And for professionals, part of what they retain is the ability to engage in professional judgment and discretion. Um, so when I go to my doctor, the, the medical community is a community of practice. I am relying on my doctor's expertise and that person's judgment, professional judgment based on their expertise to render uh a diagnosis and a course of care for me. I'm not going to go do my own research. I'm expecting that this is uh, something that that person as a member of the profession is going to do. And we expect the same thing within the military. So part of what you're judging and part of what you have discretion over is, is the question of obedience. We have said uh, you, if you commit war crimes intentionally kill non-combatants in combat, we will hold you morally responsible for that. And we will also perhaps legally punish you. So that is something we are saying you have moral agency over. If you choose to go against the norms of the community, then we will hold you responsible for that. So 
we there is this sort of collective expectation that people in the military that's what we mean when we call them professionals we expect them to exercise professional judgment and discretion around things like when to use lethal force when not to use lethal force when to obey an order uh under what circumstances ought they obey and under what circumstances ought they not obey um and to go back to the crozier case could argue that that's part of what Crozier was up to. He was rendering a judgment about the conditions of his ship based and his sailors based on his expertise, and he rendered a judgment about that. Um, that is in part what we expect um, professionals to do. That's why they have expertise. Mm-hmm. That's why we vest them with certain kinds of, of power so that they can make those judgments. Uh, on behalf of the rest of us. Bringing up the uh, the Crozier case as well, the idea then that um, you part of exercising this judgment and professional judgment and professional discretion is knowing when to be disobedient. And obviously you can't really talk about obedience without talking about disobedience. Um, and it seems that the same agency uh, that you advocate for in talking about, you know, uh, critical obedience and developing critical obedience faculties is equally present in um, disobedience. So if uh, ju- professional judgment and norms uh, and shared history and the other aspects to a community of practice root ob- obedience as a social virtue and the obligation to obey is not a limited how then should we think about disobedience? Uh, and does the same kind of garrison combat distinction apply? Would we would we want more obedience in the garrison, uh, less tolerate less obedience in the garrison, and maybe more disobedience in combat? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's two sides to the same coin, except that obedience and disobedience are not binary. There's a whole range of sort of options in between what we think of as explicit obedience and explicit disobedience, where explicit disobedience is my teenager looks at me and says, no, mom, I'm not going to clean my room. Right. 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 <laughs> um, so I think it applies to disobedience as well, because there may be times when based on the conditions and in particular, we, I think we are more comfortable with explicit disobedience or various forms of disobedience in combat. Um, and one of the examples I use is the, is the French mutinies in 1918 on the Western Front, where basically what happened was the soldiers who were fighting ended up renegotiating the contours of the command authority. So the authorities could command until the cows came home. But if people didn't obey, then you have a problem. Right. Um, and that sort of showed the contours of of that of that problem. Now, of course, that's why disobedience, especially on a mass scale, can be dangerous. But it's, it's sometimes also necessary to either get people's attention or to change a course of action. If we go to uh, the civilian context and we think about the phenomenon of civil disobedience, uh, thinking about, let's say, the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s, it was, in fact, in part, the actions of civil disobedience that brought attention to uh, injustices that needed to be redressed uh, legally. Um, so, so that when to employ disobedience, both in a military and civilian context, is important as well, because if you disobey all the time, then it then you have huge problems as well. But 
there there may be times when it's when it is morally indicated that one ought to disobey. And in fact, one of the sort of the results of of the My Lai massacre was changing how the military educates uh, its members. And it's not just that you can disobey a manifestly illegal order. It's that you have an obligation to. Um, and in fact, we might hold you responsible if you fail to disobey, which just seems like a really weird thing for the military to say. Like, we're all like, what? What? So that sort of tells you that, yes, there may be some times um, when disobedience is, is uh, in fact, necessary. I think in the military, there tends to be more tolerance of disobedience, especially if it's directed toward, if you end up being right, this is General Milley's disciplined disobedience, right? If you end up being right, then we're going to be much more tolerant of that in combat than perhaps we would be in garrison, where the point of obedience is to sort of, is to build unit cohesion, is to train people and habituate the, the, um, uh, person who's just gotten off the bus in basic training. We're probably not going to have a lot of tolerance for their disobedience, right? Because they haven't really sort of been a member of the community practice. They haven't learned professional judgment and discretion. They just don't want to do any more push-ups, right? So, um, so I think that there are some distinctions to what's the context of the disobedience? What's the reason for the disobedience? Um, so I tell a story about uh, my kids are home alone, and one of the rules when they're home alone is they are not allowed to leave the house. And my oldest son falls, and he hurts his toe, and it's bleeding pretty badly. And my youngest son leaves the house. There's no, there's no landline. Leaves the house to go to a neighbor for help. Now he disobeyed my rule, but I think there'd be very few people would look at that and say, "Well, he did the wrong thing, dude. That was a bad thing." No, of course he did the right thing, right? Um, and he, he judged that the situation required uh, that caring for his brother's bleeding toe was more important than following the rule in this context. So, I mean, that's the kind of judgment and discretion that we're asking professionals to cultivate. But we're also the book also asks citizens to start thinking about perhaps their obligation to cultivate that as well. Going back to uh, something you said about the community and its relationship to disobedience, uh, would that suggest then that if you want to affect change for a given community, that it is a prerequisite to be within that community? I guess meaning, I'm thinking here about the examples that you raise in the book of uh, areas where the civilian authority has tried to influence policy within the military and received pushback versus uh, areas where there's been organic change from within the milita- military, and if those situations suggest that uh, it's easier to be disobedient or to fall somewhere on the, the spectrum of disobedience and be tolerated if you're in the community than opposed to if you're outside the community. I think in general that is the case, although there may be times. Uh, so one of the things I talk about with civil disobedience is sort of two kinds of civil disobedience. One is civil disobedience to persuade a group of people to change a policy. But often what comes before that kind of civil disobedience is civil disobedience, which is designed to raise consciousness within a community um, or between communities. 
And the example I would give is Martin Luther King Jr. We have his letter from Birmingham jail, and we also have his I Have a Dream speech. The I Have a Dream speech is civil disobedience or is is a call to civil disobedience, uh, trying to persuade especially whites to, to change laws to redress injustice. But what came before that speech was his letter from the Birmingham jail, which was written to other white clergy members uh, that he knew. And it's a very strident uh, piece. If you've read it, he's calling them out, saying you're complicit in injustice. And so there may be a place sometimes for civilians to call members of the military out to try to raise consciousness, to try to get them to think about something. But at the end of the day, um, that will be more effective if members of that community take up that challenge and say, yeah, this is actually something we really need to think about. And then there's a conversation within the military community about changing a norm. And I would I would argue that the integration of of women and um, sexual minorities in the military that's the dynamic that has happened with those two and also uh, racial integration as well, right? These, you know, these were things that, you know, certain people, uh, some of them within the community and other people outside the community sort of called out and tried to call attention to, but then it took a much longer process of discussion within the community of practice where you're persuading the other members of the community of practice that we need to change a norm within our community. So uh, shifting gears just a, l- a little bit, one of the other things that comes to mind when people think about obedience is loyalty. Um, and uh, as you noted earlier, you know Samuel Huntington uh, made obedience one of his uh, core military virtues and loyalty the other. Um, and like Huntington, you distinguish between obedience and loyalty, uh, you know, obviously not in the same manner. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the difference between loyalty and obedience and why they are not necessarily the same thing. I think loyalty, obedience, we think about someone gives a command and someone either obeys or doesn't obey. And maybe that's within some kind of uh, social context um, that that happens. Loyalty is much more complicated because it can be multidirectional. And while there's some overlap, as Huntington is pointing out, between obedience and, and loyalty, one can be disobedient without being disloyal. So to be loyal means that you um, agree with or you endorse or you take up as your own the projects, the ideas, the commitments of another pe- another person or another you know, group or organization. So where I live in Newport, uh, when there isn't social distancing, uh, there's all kinds of of these old colonial type uh, and Victorian houses and everyone flies different uh, flags. So you'll have the American flag, but we have lots of uh, people from Australia and New Zealand and, and Great Britain. And so they will fly those respective flags. But then during different sports seasons, during football season, I'm flying the Seahawks flag because I'm originally from Tacoma. And my neighbor across the street is, of course, flying the Patriots flag. But what all of those signify is that, is that we have some kind of attachment or we have some kind of endorsement of the identities, the projects, the commitments that each of those flags 
represents. The same thing with loyalty to family or to your country or to an ideal. Um, so loyalty, as it turns out, is even more complicated uh, than obedience. And, and so one could be disobedient, um, perhaps out of loyalty. I might be disobedient to the United States uh, to call attention to a law that I think actually betrays a shared commitment that we have as citizens of that country. Um, and so, and it's the same thing in the military. I think we often think of, and I think this came up with the Crozier case, that uh, that disobedience or some other, uh, something short of obedience is also disloyalty. But I don't think that that's necessarily the case. And in fact, very often we may be disobedient or we may engage in something less than full obedience out of loyalty to other people, to an institution, to, to an ideal where we perhaps think that the person who's giving us the order has, you know, is missing the boat. So in the book, I tell a story about a hypothetical story about my mother who decides that she needs to kill my father. Um, and I say, um, no, mom, we're not going to do that. But that's not disloyal. I still love my mother. I'm still committed to a whole host of projects and, and values and, and a shared sense of history and identity. But in this case, I think the action she's contemplating violates all of those things that we are both that we both share and are committed to right so loyalty is is more complicated in that way because it's not just sort of bi-directional it's multi-directional so we also have to think about what is the intersection between obedience and, and loyalty, and especially in the military, I think we often confuse respect, loyalty, and deference all in the same sort of bucket. Um, and so part of what I want to do is start to tease those out a little bit and think about, is there a way for us to think about loyalty, which is important in the military, without tying it always explicitly to obedience because I can obey someone on a regular basis and not be loyal to them in the least. So it's, it's more, you know, there's, there's different layers of, of complication there that I think you have to look at. So in this distinction, uh, one thing that jumps out is the idea that uh, obedience is focused on a, on a specific act. And that kind of brings up, uh, you know, an objection that might come to some listeners mind uh, about you know the the time factor because as you argue you know with with we ha need to cultivate judgment and discretion and kind of turn uh, critical obedience into you know almost an automaticity but in the military especially you know in in political life you know the time horizon is very long or you know it's very far away so usually we have time to deliberate and kind of have these ideas but uh i would imagine that many listeners would think well in certain situations especially high stress high risk environment that the military operates in there's just not the time to actually have somebody sit there and and deliberate uh you know whether or not the order is legal and just and whether or not it is is what go what's going has a reasonable chance of success um what, what would you say to people who have that argument or or would try to push back against uh, what you're advocating. I actually agree with them, uh, which is why, I mean, I think about this like parenting, like 
if the first time you've ever thought about what you're going to do if your child pukes or throws a tantrum is that moment when that happens, I'm sorry, but you're doing parenting wrong, right? So most of the things that people will encounter in combat, and this is this great, this is a podcast on military history, this is why you need to read military history, right? Most of the things, many of the things that you've encountered, maybe they're not exactly the same thing, but they're different variants on similar themes, right? Which is not to say there's nothing new under the sun, but there's not as much new under the sun as think that there is. Um, and the Stoics, um, were ancient philosophers, were big into the idea of rehearsal. And if you're in New York, if you're a theater person, as my brother and his wife are, uh, rehearsal is important. And rehearsal is important to be a moral person as well, right? So uh, when you're in garrison, when people are not shooting at you, when you're going through your education and training, that's a wonderful time to think about these things and to think about uh, and the book actually has some discussion questions in the back. And the intention of this book was hopefully it would be used in, you know, book groups and professional military education conversations to think about for people, where is your line? When would you obey? When would you disobey? Because, you know, the time factor is is an issue when you're at a checkpoint and there's a car uh, rushing at you. That's a bad time to sit down and do some Aristotelian deliberation. I agree with that. Um, but what I would hope is that you would have done some deliberation about that before you got there. And I think the mil that's why we, we drill, right? That's why we train. That's why we do war games. That's why we do all of these things. Moral matters are no different. We don't just hand a recruit a gun and say, good luck with that. No, I mean, they have to be taught to take it apart and clean it and how to use it. And we want you to practice with this thing before you get into combat. Your moral agency is, is really, to me, is really no different. So the answer to the time issue is that you need to think about it uh, before you get there and you need to practice. And if you've practiced different kinds of scenarios. It's sort of like a muscle. It builds it builds the strength. It builds your capacity. So then hopefully when you get into a situation, even, even if it isn't exactly like what you've practiced, it's enough like what you've practiced that you maybe have some ideas about how to proceed. Uh, so for those of us who are parents, maybe we didn't do as much of that with our first child as we probably should have. By the time you get to the second or the third child, like, even though there's some new things that that happen, like you you have a bit of experience and a bit of a practice, so maybe you have you know some sense of of how to proceed, right? But that's also why we fight wars in community. It's not just you out there shooting people, right? There's other people in the community who hopefully have practiced. Uh, as well. It's an ensemble cast, as our theater friends would say. Um, and so hopefully you have other people within your community pr practice to rely on. It also seems that that would be a, uh, you know, since we are a nation of citizen soldiers, that that would also be a, uh, a, a forceful argument for why citizens before they join the military, or even when they leave the military should continue to cultivate these ideas. Um, and that kind of ties into something you brought up earlier that we discussed, touched upon briefly was the idea that obedience is, an, is a negotiation, uh, that it's not uh, just, uh, you know, set in stone and, you know, someone tells you to roll the iron dice and you roll the iron dice and that's it. Um, and I was wondering, 
is the citizen soldier model then kind of a necessary prerequisite for obedience as negotiation to work? Um, you know, would we, and uh, I guess connected to that, if if it is, and we are uh, fighting against a foe whose army is not citizen soldiers, uh, does that kind of start to degrade how we think about their moral agency uh, and them as moral actors in the battle? Does that make, uh, you know, maybe our adherence to the norms of our own community of practice uh, cause them to not extend to people that we're fighting? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, you know, I think citizen soldiers is is part of our tradition and part of our history. I, I'm not prepared to die on the hill that that's the only way to go. I think that's sort of how we evolved uh, where we came from, although now with an all-volunteer force, there's lots of debates about whether that's still a helpful model and whether that's even a model we're still sort of adhering to at all. Um, so I think that that one's an open question. I'm, you know, I'm uh, happy to hear arguments. I think I have a sort of probably somewhat sentimental and philosophical, you know, attachment to the notion of, of a, a citizen soldier. Um, but that's not to say there aren't other ways of going about it. I think the more important question is, is, is your second question about what happens when, whether we're committed to, to the idea of a citizen soldier or have some other notion, what happens when we come into conflict, we're fighting a conflict with people who don't share uh, our moral norms or norms about what a professional military is or how people ought to fight. And I think this is not a new phenomenon. The problem of moral asymmetry is as arguably as, as old as, as warfare itself. But I think it's worth thinking about the reasons why we hold to certain norms and traditions and practices uh, within the military and that that's not just an instrumental discussion. So when we were having a discussion some years ago about whether we were going to engage in interrogational uh, torture. Um, there was, you know, a lot of argument about, well, what if they do it? And then if we don't do it, then we're at a strategic disadvantage. We hear the same arguments about AI and all kinds of other things. And um, I guess I would recall us to our childhood. Uh, and if you had a sibling and you hit your sibling and the sibling hit you back and your mother comes in the room and says, and, and you say, well, he hit me first. We all know what all of our mothers said in that moment. And that was, this is not about your brother. This is about your behavior. And so I think it's really important for us to think about the, the profession, the military profession as we understand it in our, you know, our political community and why the values of that community of practice are important, regardless of how other people act. Right. Which isn't to say that has no strategic implications, but if the only reason you're following a moral norm is because it benefits you, then you're not really following a moral norm. You're just doing what's convenient. That's not what morality is. Morality has to do with a claim that something is right or wrong, not convenient in the moment. So I guess part of what that means is for the professional military and for those of us who educate members of the professional military, and also who communicate with the civilian populace, that it's really, really clear why we have these values, why these moral norms and values are, are important to uphold and understand 
why we have them and, and how they operate. And that's part of the discussion in, in the latter part of the book about the civilian-military relationship. I mean, there are reasons why we have certain uh, commitments within the, mil- the profession of arms. And it's important both that the members of the profession understand that and other people understand that as well. Yeah, so civilian understanding of the norms and commitments of the profession of arms is a subject you discuss at length in the in the second to last chapter of the book. Um, over the last 20 years, it really seems as though the civil military culture gap has grown into a chasm. Uh, and you argue quite persuasively that the situation is problematic, you know, both for the military and for the civil society it serves. Um, can you speak a little bit about, you know, why you feel this gap is so dangerous? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I agree with some of my military friends that uh, the gap is a, it, it, you know, is there for certain kinds of reasons, and some level of a gap will always be there. I think that's true. Um, I think when it becomes so pronounced that the members of the civilian community literally don't understand how the profession of arms works, um, or you know you know, ceases to be interested in what the profession of arms is doing. Oh, you just go win our wars and then we'll leave you alone. Those kinds of things. I think that that can be, um, I think that that can be really dangerous. And part of it is because the definition of a profession is that they are given special permissions by the society and they act on behalf of the society. So what that means is when uh, a member of the profession of arms commits war crimes. They are doing so in my name. And I often sort of facetiously say to my students who are military officers, you work for me. They do. They work for all of us. Right. So, uh, you know, the even though we elect officials to 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 the government and is the government who has control, civilian government who has control over the military. Ultimately, those civilians are answerable, at least in theory to the citizenry. And what that means in moral terms is that when things go wrong, when war crimes are committed, when a war is entered into uh, for reasons that do not pass moral muster, that is done in your name and you bear moral responsibility, at least some moral responsibility for that. So, and I think, you know, I try to make the case in the book that I see a danger here that uh, especially in our current context, Americans are very happy to outsource moral work to other people. They're more than happy to say to the military, okay, you go do this. I don't want to have to think about it. I don't want to look at it. You just go do your thing. Um, and, and that works to a degree, except then we're exposing members of the military as we see in the conversations about the epidemics of suicide, PTSD, and moral injury we are exposing members of the military to a certain kind of moral hazard that then as as members of society we are not prepared to engage with and accept responsibility for when they return from war so i think those kinds of conversations have 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 raised um the issue about why this gap is so problematic because there's a sort of um, moral outsourcing or moral exploitation uh, that, that, that's happening. Michael Robillard, who's a philosopher, has, has written a lot uh, on this. And I think it's a really serious problem. I think there are limits to how much of people's soul or their moral agency we can ask them to sacrifice for the state 
when the rest of us aren't willing to uh, take on our share of the moral responsibility. So it's sort of questions like that where I think, and I argue in the book, that citizens need to re-engage in the conversation, right? It's time for us to loop back and start reclaiming some of our moral agency and, and, and start bearing that burden, but also because it produces a better relationship. The civilians and the military need to work. To, they work together in our system and they need to work together in our system. And I think uh, recent events uh, have shown, you know, that, that things can go awry when that relationship isn't working properly. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. So I have two more questions, which are a little more lighthearted since we kind of ended on a serious note there. <laughs> um, and uh, we put these questions to all our guests. Uh, the first one is, uh, what project do you anticipate working on next? Well, I'm taking a break for a while uh, because I'm tired. Uh, but I think the next thing I'll be thinking about is uh, military honor and whether that is a notion. Some people claim that's a very sort of antiquated and, and highly gendered uh, notion is, is that something that we can and should recapture? So that that's probably will be my next project. Uh, we'll definitely look at it. We'll have to have you back when, uh, when it comes out lastly. And uh, it strikes me now that this question has assumed an unanticipated poignancy for all our listeners. Um, <laughs> what are you currently reading, watching, or listening to that our audience might want to check out? Well, I'm one of those people, I cannot read one book at a time. So uh, a couple of things I'm reading, my co- my Naval War College colleague, uh, Yvonne Chu, she has a book called Conspiring with the Enemy, which is about the ethics of cooperation with the adversary in warfare, which is uh, something I literally never thought about. And it's super fascinating. Um I'm also reading uh, August Cole and P.W. Singer's new book, uh, called uh, Burn In, which is about AI and robots. And uh, I don't normally read a lot of fiction, but it's um, it's it's really engaging uh, and really interesting. And then because I'm a philosopher, I am not reading it for the first time. I used to teach it, but I, I decided to go back and reread Albert Camus' The Plague. Um, for somewhat obvious reasons and um, have found that actually very, I'm not sure I would recommend it maybe uh, for people for your first time uh, read right now, but perhaps at some point when you're ready to reflect on what's uh, happening, uh, I'm finding a really cathartic read because he's describing a lot of things I think we're going through, but I haven't been able to articulate uh, and reflect on what I'm going through, which as a philosopher is a very, usually I'm very good at that. Um, and so that's been really uh, interesting and sort of disconcerting. And in some ways it, it sort of reinforces my view that while some things are new, the, the, the shape of things bears some resemblance to the past. So maybe that's a good argument for, you know, uh, reading military history and other kinds of history that, because they can help us maybe think about our own context, even if they aren't exactly our own context. Pauline, thank you again for uh, speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. And to all of our listeners, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is Scott Lipkowitz. Thanks for listening.